Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Well, today on Everyday Theology, I have a pleasure to speak with um, Kim Alexander. Um, she serves as the Associate Professor of History of Christianity in the School of Divinity at Regent University. And Kim and I met, uh, I think at SBS, probably quite a few years ago, and have just been uh, always in conversation kind of here and there as we get to see each other around. So thank you, Kim, so much for being with us today. Well, it's really a privilege to do this. And I appreciate very much um, this platform, really appreciate the, uh, the podcast. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to talk about something that I'm passionate about. Yeah. And so today we are going to talk about kind of women in church, in, in the church, like some history, some current it's going to be a bit of a broad conversation, but I think a helpful one. Before we dive in, if you wouldn't mind letting our listeners know a little bit more about you, giving your story so maybe they can kind of get to know you a little bit. Sure. Um, okay. So I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Um, I'm third generation, which is not the biggest pedigree that scholars have. I do know Pentecostal scholars with fourth generation pedigree, but mine's just third. Uh, but I've never known anything, you know, but church. And so I went to seminary sort of with the idea that I was just going to take Greek so I'd be better at teaching the Bible, things like that. And I got kind of hooked. And so, <laughs> um, and I, well, I won't go into that long story, but anyway, I decided that I really did want to do a uh, degree, theological education. Um, at the same time, my husband, who he has a, a doctor of missiology degree from Fuller, uh, but he didn't at that time. And we were pastoring, um, planting churches and having children. And so we had uh, three daughters, actually. And I did my Ph.D., after the third one was born. So there was a time wow. between my master's degree and my um, PhD. And when I started my PhD, I, um, I wanted to, I thought about focusing actually on women in some way, but there were some other kind of holes in Pentecostal theological studies that I thought needed to be addressed. And I had some good advice uh, by some folk. Um, and uh, so I did not do my dissertation or thesis in England on women in Christian tradition, though there is there are some implications in it for women. But this quickly became a, a major area of focus for me as well. Um, I, after I graduated, I began teaching at Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee, Church of God Seminary. And I was there for 11 years before coming to Regent about nine years ago now. And uh, so I've been doing theological education for around 20 years. I uh, love training ministers. I love, um, but I also have enjoyed at Regent getting to work with some PhD students who are doing some really important work. Um, one of those I, I probably will talk about actually in some of the research he's done. Um, 
but the, I don't know. Is there any other, anything else you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I, I, I mean, only, you know, just getting married and having a dog. I could not imagine doing a PhD with three kids. It was, um, very interesting, but you know, I, um, being the Pentecostal that I am, I sort of told the Lord, okay, if you really want me to do this, um, I need for certain things to work out because I was, you know, I did not want it to be a, a terrible, um, hardship on the family, either financially or just time spent. And the Lord really did, um, open up a door for me to do work in England. And so I would go every summer for about six weeks um, June and into July. And I did that for six years. And that's how I wrote my dissertation or thesis. And uh, did I would do a lot of the research during the year and then go and just write for six weeks. Um, but that was great because the girls could go spend time with my parents or go to youth camp or go on church trips. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. So it, I did not have to do any kind of residency or anything during the, um, their school years, um, time or anything like that. Um, and of course I also was doing during that time, a lot, a lot, a lot of adjuncting, uh, in order to pay (laughs) (laughs) PhD program. Yeah. So, and it takes a lot of adjuncting to pay for anything. It really does. does. (laughs) And I taught anything and everything. I mean, it was like, they'd say, can you do, oh yeah, I can do it. Which gave me this really broad, you know, I mean, it was good. I was teaching all kinds of things. There was one semester I taught four nights a week and one day, you know, um, and I was teaching everything from business ethics to, you know, Old Testament survey to you know, <laughs> anything, missions, you know. Uh, I never the, took a missions course, but I taught a missions course. So, you know, the, so. uh, the, the problem of saying yes to everything, because if you say no once in the academic yeah. world, uh, there you especially go. starting off, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, today I would love to focus on, uh, even though you and I, we've, we've had lots of conversations about the academic world, yeah. uh, to focus on this kind of idea or th- this thought about how do we kind of perceive and understand the way, the trajectory that the church has dealt with women and why are we in the space that we are today and what can we do better in the future? And I know that's very broad, but if you can start maybe from there for our listeners in, in the idea of how has the church, what has been the trajectory of the church and how has the church treated or understood women that leads us to where we are? Okay. Um, I think this is so important because there is a tendency among especially people who are opposed to women in ministry, um, but possibly just kind of the general church public, uh, to think that this is some new issue, that this is, um, you know, some radical feminist agenda to, or whatever. Right. Yeah. But this is, there have been, there's been a strong presence of women ministers and leaders since the beginning of the Christian church. And that really needs to be understood and unpacked um, in order to situate the current situation correctly, I think. Now, I'm not an early church or even a biblical studies um, scholar. And so I really rely on the work of a lot of other people for this. Um, But, I mean, well, in seminary, um, you know, some of the work that I did was actually on those early women ascetics. You know, when I would take a historical theology class, you know, then I would kind of focus because I was mainly it was such a it was news to me. You know, even though the Pentecostal church where women preachers were um, maybe not prevalent, but but accepted my aunt started preaching when she was 14 years old and she's still preaching. Um, she's in her early seventies now. Um, so it wasn't uncommon to me. Um, but I had no understanding whatsoever that this was a long tradition. 
And so I think it's very, very important that we situate it that way. And um, when I've taught on this, it's what I always do is I always go back and say, okay, we need to look at this um, first in, in scripture and then move through um, the history of the church. So um, one of the things that I think is helpful um, I probably shouldn't start with this, but now that I've opened it up, I will. <laughs> um, I think if we have a hermeneutic that allows us not only to read scripture, but also Christian history with a positive view of women and their participation, we see a lot of things that we wouldn't see otherwise. So hmm. there are, um, well, history, especially Christian history has been written by men <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and Christian history, unfortunately, is often ecclesiastical history. And so it's, you know, the church councils, the stuff that's happening at the centers of, of uh, decision making and for a lot of reasons that we can talk about women have been not in those rooms. Right. And, but we know that from the beginning of the Christian church, women have been a majority of participants in the Christian movement. Um, And so if we read, if we go back um, and you can talk about this as a history from below approach, um, but if you if you go back and um, just open your eyes and say, okay, I'm going to look for women in this trajectory, it's amazing. You're going to see a lot of stuff. I recently did a, uh, a presentation with one of our New Testament professors um, and one of our um, a spiritual formation professor at Regent, Lyle Story, New Testament scholar, and Diane Chandler, who teaches in the area of spiritual formation. And he had us just come and he filmed this kind of panel discussion that we did, the three of us talking about women in Luke Acts. And he hmm. put this in one of his courses. And so Diane did Luke and I did Acts. So I just, in preparation for this, just started reading through Acts and looking for women. And women are there from the beginning all the way through, and they're very prominent. But because we haven't been trained to see that, we don't really notice that it's women who Paul goes to almost in every situation. It's women who are inviting him into hmm. you know, house church settings, or it's, it's women who are helping to fund his ministry. It's women. And so... You know, from the beginning, you have this, but we haven't, you know, we focused on Peter and Paul, you know, in the book. Um, so just just changing the lens a little bit yeah. really feels a lot. Now, Stark, Rodney Stark um, has argued that there is this preponderance of women and that women are really important for the rise of Christianity. He's a sociologist though. So he's looking at it from this kind of sociological perspective. Um, And I don't disagree with his findings, which are really, really interesting. Um, But I would say, I think beyond just um, looking at, okay, because there's a lot of women and because the Christian church is against infanticide and abortion early on, you have high birth rates and this means that Christianity grows. Right. I think that's a legitimate argument, but I want to look at why there are women gravitating to the Christian movement, you know, and I think it is because Um, that there is a valuing of women in Christianity. But beyond that, um, I don't want to get too radical here. (laughs) No, no, go for it. We're we're all for it. I think there is this um, feminization that the Christian movement brings to the ancient world and beyond that that attracts women. 
in particular. Um, and I've argued, I've talked about this with regard to Pentecostalism in particular, um, but I think you can see it on back as well. And so women are finding, I, I like to think about the way women have worked throughout Christian history as sort of navigating the terrain um, and a lot of senses, the patriarchal culture that they find themselves in within and without the church. So they navigate and then they kind of negotiate space for themselves. Um, yeah. But women have been able to do this in really important ways. And it's not just that they've, um, you know, found space. It's that the space that they have found has actually formed Christianity in the way that we understand it. Yeah. You know, so for instance, women, um, I mean, one of the things that people observed about Christians early on, right, was that the way they cared for the sick during a plague, which since we're recording this during a time of pandemic is a particularly <laughs> discussion. Um, but the Christian church didn't just, you know, throw plague vict- victims out on the street and let them die. Christians cared for those among them who were sick and others. Um, Amanda Porterfield talks about this a lot in um, her book, Healing in the History of Christianity. Well, nurturing, healing arts um, and care and all of those are particularly feminine uh, roles. (laughs) And so this thing that stands out to the rest of the ancient world is a particularly feminine thing about Christianity. If you want to use those gender kinds of um, categories there. And I think we see that, you know, throughout one of the things I've been really interested in lately is looking at the role, especially in the 19th century and into the 20th, um, of deaconesses. And while in Pentecostalism, in early Pentecostal missions, we didn't really have a category of an order of deaconesses like you did have in um, other traditions, we still had these women who are functioning in this way. And so women missionaries, there are these women missionaries in Pentecostalism um, and in holiness traditions and um, and others who do preaching and teaching and church planting and all that. And I can talk about one of those in a moment, but they <laughs> so are really involved in things like um, te- schools and orphanages and nursing. Okay. Well, you know, on the one hand, it might be that kind of male leaders relegate them to that. But turns out that's kind of the really effective way to do missions. <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah. You know, so someone like Lillian Trasher goes to Egypt, you know, to preach and teach. But immediately, because she's a woman, people begin bringing these orphaned children to her and their sick children to her. And she builds this incredible orphanage. Um And that is still, and she's still revered in Egypt today for that work. So, um, so while women on the one hand seem to be sort of relegated to things, it's almost like, you know, if I want to get real spiritual about it, God turns that and makes that the thing that makes the movement grow and be successful. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I I think, I I think that's, for so many people, because like what you said, you know, history is written primarily by men and scripture itself is written primarily by men that we, we often are given a viewpoint that does not show this work of women. And we, we often miss how important women have been throughout the history of the church, even when women were told that they couldn't preach in certain times in certain places, that without women, the church itself would not have been as vibrant or as impactful 
because half of the population, right? Like, I mean, half of in the church today, of course, there's actually more women than there are men in the church. And yet we still kind of push this idea that, and not, not all of us, right. But there is still a, an idea at large that women should just be Sunday school teachers or should just be, you know, a spouse. Like they, they can't be a pastor unless they're also married and that other person is like the co-pastoring thing. And yet I love what you're saying in terms of like bring this to our attention that, you know, throughout lots of church history, if it weren't for women, vital things would not have been done that actually caused the church to grow. Yeah. And actually, you know, possibly um, saved the church from its demise, you know. Ooh, I, I need to hear that. Yeah. I don't want to say, I mean, I don't want to go anybody to go away saying, well, she's just saying that women did these, you know, nursing kind of roles because we have very good evidence um, early on. And again, this is me relying on the early church scholars. Um, it's not my area, but there's very good evidence that there were women um, in the New Testament, but also in the early church who were serving in priestly functions. Yeah. Um, and so that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, but and there are women. So we know that in the early church, there are women who are we have these frescoes, right, that um, that depict women in priestly um, manner and poses and offering the Eucharist and things like that. Um so we know that they were off, they were operating in that way. We know they are speaking prophetically, um, and we know that there are women, um, uh, at least Junia, who is recognized as an apostle. Um, and that's another thing that we should probably come back to is what happens with Junia. But um, and we know that there are women um, deaconesses in the early church. So women were doing the traditionally gendered male things in church world um, as, you know, which um, like serving the Eucharist, for instance, uh, baptizing and other things. Um, But uh, that isn't the prominent role that women hold for a variety of reasons. And that is because Christianity um, tends to, for better and worse, take on the culture that it's in. Now, you know, it should be a countercultural move and it or movement and it is in most settings, but it can easily take on the culture and if patriarchy is the dominant culture, it's that's a pretty hard uh, wall to tear down. And yeah. so you don't, you don't see you know, women as priests, for instance, in this long-term kind of way. Um, But you do see it. And so women have served in those ways. Here's a fun story. Um, In this, in Virginia Beach, where I live, uh, there's a um, large church that you may have heard of um, called Rock Church. And it was founded by a couple, John and Ann Jimenez, and um, Anne Jimenez is now in her 80s. And um, so she was she started preaching in Texas Pentecostal Church when she was in her teens. She met John number of years later. He was a teen challenge graduate. So it's that whole kind of Jesus people, charismatic movement, golden age kind of thing. They get married, start this church here. And then they start other churches that are known as Rock Church. And John is the bishop over those churches, and they have churches around the world. Well, he died a few years back, and they didn't necessarily want to allow Anne to be the bishop of those churches. <laughs> but she brought in uh, Vincent Sinan, who was the uh, then the dean of the School of Divinity at Regent, um, to talk to the elders, et cetera, about uh, 
women bishops in the church and the long history of that so that she could become <laughs> bishop. So, <laughs> you know, even though for years she had been preaching to them every week, she, I mean, and she was this dynamic preacher. Um, she'd been preaching. They founded all these churches and done all of this. Still, they weren't quite willing to allow her to take on this, uh, this office and, even though she's probably functionally serving in that office right. um, until they can justify, you know? So um, again, because they had not read the history um, or the biblical text in a way that allowed for that. And I'm not, I'm not calling for some sort of, um, you know, I hate this term, but some sort of culturally relative way of reading text, you know, in a, the negative view of that. I'm just saying, if you if you twist, not twist, that's a terrible word. If you just change the lens a little bit, then you might read the book of Acts and church history as seeing God actually challenging patriarchy. Yeah. By calling these women and equipping them and making them, uh, say, the book of Judges, the best of the judges, <laughs> you know, the, the godliest of the judges that are, are there. Um, but we just, you know, judges, uh, Deborah is read as some exception to the rule rather than maybe the model. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's, I, I mean, I remember being a kid and I grew up in a tradition that does not allow women in the highest ranks of leadership. And I remember growing up and hearing that story specifically as the the only reason Deborah had to lead as a judge was because men failed. So it's as if like women can only be leaders when men fail. But I didn't see that in the story, right? I, I didn't read that in the story as if it's like there is this nation in crisis and there wasn't a single man to lead. And so Deborah, right? <laughs> like, uh, but I think if, if, this question may take us into a space that I don't know if we're ready to go, but why is it, I mean, again, the timing of, of us recording this podcast, there's a, you know, the particular thing happening where people are, are using this claim of those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it for their own kind of political reasons. And yet we have this history of the church, often the history of women in the church, that is so unknown that it seems that we're repeating the same history at times where women are still relegated in many churches or are still kind of seen as, you know, sure, okay, maybe we have to make an exception this time, as opposed to, yes, this is exactly what should happen. Now, if I can ask this question other than not knowing our history, why is that? Why do you think it is that we've just, we continually fail to recognize these things? Um, well, I think I hinted at it a little bit earlier, but I think... There is such a tendency for humans uh, to just accommodate to culture. That's probably a simplistic view. And I know it, there's a lot of other complicated things. But when I read these examples of, um, say, for instance, and here's one I just was doing some research on, the Pentecostal movement in Great Britain when it begins in 1907, um, it begins, I'm sure you know this story, but uh, in, well, it had, there had already been some revivals, but the main center was in the north of England in Sunderland in, at an Anglican church uh, with an Anglican vicar named um, Alexander Body, And his wife, Mary, already had a healing ministry um, hmm. and was writing and teaching and all of that. And so immediately when you start reading the um, accounts of the conventions or conferences he was holding every year, and then the publication, which was a monthly periodical, you see 
scores of women participating in those meetings and writing and teaching, opening the meetings. Um, And so it seems to be like most early Pentecostalism, a pretty egalitarian movement going on, even in an Anglican church setting. Yeah. uh, With a vicar, you know, Um, and, but then in 1914, there is this, I mean, it's like this suddenly out of nowhere, and I'm sure it's not out of nowhere, but you don't get the backstory. So I don't really know where it comes from. Um, suddenly they have this conversation at the, um, at his annual uh, meeting and, uh, and it's these European leaders discussing the place, quote, the place of women. Yeah. And what's interesting is that in the whole conversation that is recorded, only one woman speaks, and she is the wife of a Dutch Pentecostal leader, Mrs. Pullman. She's Garrett Pullman's uh, wife. And she basically takes that, uh, the tack that you just talked about, which is, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm the wife, my husband is the leader and I never do this unless he's not around and needs me to do it for him kind of thing. Right. And that's the only female voice that speaks in that entire, that entire, uh, conversation, which went on apparently a couple of days. Now there may have been other women, but she's the only one recorded, which that's a whole other thing that we could talk about. So, so I think that there was this growing uh, discomfort with the the move. You know, um, Margaret Paloma has talked about this with early Pentecostalism. You know that you start getting these issues with regard to race and um, uh, and gender, especially when they start talking about organizing. And, and of course, she's using a kind of Max uh, Weber, um, you know handle on all of that. And I think yeah. that's really helpful. But I do think that there, I've, I've also looked at this with regard to Pentecostals in the South and Jim Crow laws. So there is this moment of revival, whatever, at whatever time in history, where where women are speaking and leading. And uh, one of my students talked about this as, um, he's a Vietnamese um, student, and he talked about it as the the intuition of the Holy Spirit was to allow these women's voices or indigenous voices or whatever. But then suddenly, you know, there, there's this like, put the brakes on because this is uncomfortable in culture. You know, we can't keep being against the culture like this when maybe that's exactly what they're supposed to be. <laughs> Maybe that's exactly what the Pentecostal outpouring or, or what, whatever is about, you know? So, uh, I think that's the, the short answer, which I talked too long about the short answer, but anyway, <laughs> the short answer is that there is the, the, you know, once the revival starts settling a little bit and there's this need to organize and, then you you get heightened male leadership and actually discussions about the role of women. Yeah. Um, and those at the beginning are kind of missing. And then all of a sudden, well, we, we better think about this and what what should we do here? Um it's it's almost as if when things start to have prominence or power or significance all of a sudden people come by and say, how do I, how do I get to control? How do I get to take over? How do I, how do I have that power? And then we start talking about, well, where is the place of women? You know, it's, it's clear that some of these kind of movements really have been fostered by women who have been empowered to do so. And then people come by later whenever they go, oh, that actually has something to it. I want it. I want it. 
you know, like, or, or, or it should be, it should be led by a man. It, it reminded me since we were talking about some early Pentecostals, you know, it reminds me of kind of the story of William Seymour as an African-American male who really leads the Azusa street revival. And as kind of the history goes, you know, after some time in it being very kind of vibrant and quote unquote successful, maybe not in a business mindset, but in a revival mindset that white men wanted to take it over. And, and it's, it's because it actually, there was something to it. It's, it's, it, it's really saddening, I think, when we actually reflect on that reality, how very often it really has little to do with what God wants in the moment, but more to do with power and control and how do we get it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that is, um, you know, that's a real key um, to understanding what's going on there. And and here's the other thing. And, you know, now might start preaching here. Oh, go for it. It's borrowing a model of power um, from the world, as you mentioned, and uh, negating the kind of holy power (laughs) that comes in the move of the spirit. Um, And so, I mean, you, and, and the case with race is really clear because when these white men come in, they actually start talking about Seymour in as if he's ignorant, right? So they actually are denigrating him and subordinating him based on, you know, he doesn't have these qualifications that real leaders. Well, so who's to say, who's setting that agenda for what leadership looks like, what power looks like? Yeah. Um, and so it's borrowing of these worldly models. And, um, you know, I like to liken it to the, you know, Saul's armor, right? I mean, it's like, it just didn't fit David, right? So it's, we're borrowing these models of armor that don't fit the Christian or Pentecostal movement. And um, and I think if we if we look through a different lens, we see that God is saying something different about what leadership looks like, about what power looks like, about um, uh, what participation in the body of Christ looks like. But when we, uh, you know, there have been people who've analyzed it as shame. Um, You know, it's a shame-based thing. Well, we've got to be like somebody else. Um, Yeah. There's, you know, there's just a lot going on there, but what we're constantly up against is this patriarchal culture. And, um, you know, a a, kind of classic example of this is uh, a recent discussion, which uh, a few years back um, that happened among um, conservative evangelicals. And so you have people like John Piper talking about Christianity, if you look at it, you know, throughout the Bible, throughout history, it has this masculine feel to it. Um, And because God makes kings, you know, men are kings. Men are the disciples. Jesus is male, you know. And so there's this masculine feel. And then he says, you know, women flourish more when men lead because that's that the whole kingdom of God is masculine, you know? So obviously that raises all kinds besides just the, you know, the practical issues with regard to leadership. It raises a lot of theological issues, but what what are you saying there about God, you know? And then you get his buddy, Wayne Grudem, um, who then starts reinterpreting what the Trinity is like. Uh, He has this eternal subordination of the son that he began, he and some other evangelicals uh, began to really tout um, and write about and defend. But it seems to come out of their concern with women being insubordinate. Hmm. So, Hmm. so, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's disturbing. 
and there's a reason, as we talked about earlier, that my um, my unfortunate collection of Grudem books from a degree from forever ago are sitting in the corner of the room marked for destruction, and I don't know what to do with them yet. <laughs> um, but I think that's interesting, and I think there's a, a word that you used early on in the podcast that I actually want to bring back up now, because it kind of has to do with that. It, it's... You know, this feminism, feminism word, right, which is so easily demonized by people in the church, especially by men leaders in the church, largely for failure of understanding the term or for seeing what, you know, what people do, which, you know, a lot, unfortunately, even in our our traditions will just watch a certain news outlet and that word will be emboldened during some interesting protests and they go, well, that's what they are. Right. So when we, and I think this is kind of like what you're talking about in, in terms of Grudem's pushing back, like wanting to change a doctrine of the Trinity in order to deal with women in some sense is happening around the same time as kind of feminism is really taking uh, a stand or really kind of starting to become maybe like finding filtering its kind of way into the church. And so maybe if you can kind of like talk about that word a little bit to help our listeners who may not have ever understood really, I know there's different waves of feminism and we could go into that. that that's a, that's its own podcast right there. But, but what is a helpful way to think about when we talk about this word feminism and why is it not contra to the idea of God or the church? Well, um, yeah, I mean, a, a kind of basic definition that feminists give for what a feminist is, is someone who believes that women are people too. Um, and so. That's uh, a radical idea right there. Yeah, right. Very uh, radical. So from a Christian perspective, what Christian feminists say um, and remember, first wave feminism was essentially a Christian movement. Um, it was, you know, these were Quaker, Methodist, holiness women. Um, not all of them were, but many of them were, the suffragettes, the abolitionists and all of that. Um, but what we're saying from a Christian perspective is that we believe women are created in the image of God. Um, we have full humanity, full personhood. Um, now, again, that shouldn't be a radical notion, but when you read people like um, Grudem, he goes, and and uh, what's the guy's name, Ware, is it Bruce Ware? Um, his sounds, uh, sounds right. Um, um, you know, he actually, yeah, Bruce Ware, he actually goes into great, you know, uh, exegetical calisthenics in order to get to the point that because women are created, you know, from the rib of the man and not from the dust of the earth, that they're, the image of God in them is mediated. And that's the, the language that, that he huh. uses. Um, and so, um, you know, then what this means is that you can, of course, subordinate women in and they'll always, you know, take great pains to say we're not saying they're, you know, not valued or any of these things. It's just they have their place and they can do these things and they're more they're happier if they do, you know. So right. all being dictated by this kind of male reading of um, of the text. And I, I think it actually, and, um, I'm getting off of my, uh, the main, <laughs> I think no, it's it, okay. This is a great space. Yeah. I think it goes back to understanding and defining humanity, um, from Genesis three rather than Genesis one and two. And so the situation in Genesis three after the fall becomes the standard. Right. I've often said to Pentecostals, well, you know, you pray. Pentecostalism is marked by prayers against all of those other things that are products of the fall. 
you know, sickness, um, you know, pain, even death, all of that. We pray against that, claim it, anoint, (laughs) you know, the whole thing. But women are still supposed to be, you know, subject to their husbands. Um, And that's given, right? So we just, we just ignore that that actually where that situation is, is in fallen humanity. Um, And of course we could get into whole, you know, well, there are theologies, Christian theologies, considered Orthodox theologies or whatever that, that do say, you know, yes, that, uh, you know, this total depravity idea or whatever. But if you, if you believe that salvation is about recovering the image of God, then a Christian feminist perspective is that in full salvation means full participation of women. Mm, yeah. One of the problems is when we put the women's issue or the race issue, make them issues and not a part of soteriology, um, yeah. then it's easy to push it to the back burner. It's easy to put it further down on the agenda so that you never get to that, you know, um, because it's an issue. And the main thing is the gospel. Well, the gospel is full salvation, you know? And so um, it's kind of like the old question that used to emerge about missions. Is it just about saving souls or is it about, you know, other things like feeding the hungry and benevolence activities? Well, Now, thankfully, in Pentecostal circles, we've, you know, in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, finally come to realize, oh, that's a part of the gospel too, feeding the hungry, (laughs) not just going out and, you know, holding crusades. Um, And, but it's the same thing. We're, We're talking about, you know, half of the population in the church and in, in the church, probably the greater part of the population, as you said, um, not being able to fully participate in the body of Christ. And in some ways in God, because of um, bad theology that I yeah. think um, is not, not interested in recovering that image um, so it, it has everything to do with your soteriology, I think. I, I love that, that idea of just kind of speaking it out, you know, full, full salvation is full participation. Um, cause I don't, I don't think a lot of, I mean, we very often don't think about salvation in participation language anyways. You know, we think of salvation I think is the evangelical church at whole more about the saving of the soul. And that's the most important part, but that that's part of the issue, right? Is that we've failed to see that salvation is more than just about some metaphor of going to heaven and not going to hell, but actually what happens here. Now, if, if I can ask maybe one last kind of question, where do we go from here? What what can the church learn from the history of of whether it's more recent kind of history of women in the church? But where where do we go from here that that might help us keep moving the way forward as it needs to? I mean, it needs to be quicker, but unfortunately, we we know how that works. Um, pending a massive revival, where do we go from here uh, to help kind of? better position the church to where it should be? Okay. Well, um, I can, I can talk about that from two different ways, um, right off the top of my head. I could probably talk about it in about 15 different ways, um, in another hour, but, um, first of all, kind of from an academic perspective, um, I think that, and I see this a lot in an academic perspective from academics and scholars, but I think doing that whole thing of using that different hermeneutic, um, and this was sort of a, you know, uh, a first wave and second wave feminist idea anyway, but to recover these stories, to recover that reading of scripture, to recover all of that is really, really important. And, um, I, I was talking to um, someone else the other day about the need, you know, we need to write a people's history of the Pentecostal movement, for instance. Um, 
because if we do that, we're going to see people, we're going to see things very different. So I mentioned earlier this uh, student of mine from Egypt who who just wrote uh, his dissertation on history of Pentecostalism in Egypt, which is, you know, over 100 years now um, of history. And um, he was Egyptian, so it was great. He was able to read, you know, Arabic sources that other people haven't and all of that. And he just found amazing things. But one of the things he... um, well, he uncovered stuff about Lucy Leatherman as probably the first person to take the the, gospel, the Pentecostal message to Egypt, and that had been overlooked. But he wrote about a woman in Assemblies of God history, Mabel Dean. Mabel Dean went to Egypt in 1924 as a missionary when she was 40 years old. She died in 1961 never having gone back to America ever. Hmm. And wow. when in 1951, and I, I, I went back and looked at this this week so I could make sure I got all these facts right. She was preaching to crowds of four and 5,000 people. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And when she died in 61, there were 45 congregations that she had started. That's incredible. Yes. Right. But she's not in our history. Um, I think that makes her one of the most prolific church planters <laughs> in the history of Pentecostalism. Forty five. Yeah, you know, for sure. And as he said, she's she's holding the first mega meetings, <laughs> 5000 people in 1951. Um, but if you just read that history and go and do the hard work of uncovering you know, the, the sources that are there, um, and really thinking about what all of that means, then you're going to see Christianity and Pentecostalism in particular, since that's my research area, I can talk about it, but you're going to see it differently. And I think that's very important. And here's a practical implication of that. First of all, for the health of the church, we have to do that. Um, yeah. One way, one of the ways to think about the fact that women aren't able to be fully participant in the work of the church is that it makes the church unhealthy. Um, if if half of your and half is a generous uh, estimation, yeah, if it is half of your body is not flourishing, then you are very sick. Yeah, and. So one of the ways to think about this is for the health of the church and for these women created in the image of God, all of these stories have to be recovered, these ways of reading text. Because here's what happens to an individual woman. She doesn't see herself anywhere in the church. She feels a call of God. She doesn't hear another feminine voice preaching, teaching. And, you know, it's like a a child growing up that you have to have these mirror images to be able to really flourish. And when we are depriving women of that, much less what it's doing to, to men. And so it's warping their understandings of humanity. Uh, But we are actually um, making ourselves sick. Yeah. And uh, so that gets then into sort of practical things that have to be done. We have to have more women's voices. We have to have just, I, I look at this all the time, you know, Facebook. Um, people put up these posters, you know, flyers on Facebook about church events and conferences and church planting meetings and revivals and la, la, la. And I look and all of the pictures are men. All the speakers are men, Um, Mm. mostly white men. And, um, you know, and then there might be the token woman that's going to sing or something, or they'll have a session, you know, for women to go to. Um, And so women can't find themselves in their own church space, you know? Um, so we have to start doing visible 
physical things to bring this about. Um, and I yeah. think that we have to repent. I think we have to repent of the way we've treated persons of color in these white dominated churches, obviously, but we also have to repent for the way women have been negated. And, um, you know, once that repentance and that realization, that reckoning is done, then we can begin to really build. Yeah. But unfortunately, people don't want to admit there's been a problem. Um, and so yeah, those are uh, obviously scholars. There's a lot of work scholars can do, but most of us in scholarship are also very involved in church ministry. And so we have to, um, I have to do my work in a way that will translate it, that can be translated to the church as well. If I really want to see renewal of the churches and I really want to see full salvation. Um, So, you know, I've done research on this, uh, an empirical study that I did with um, James Bowers a number of years ago. It was really his study, but I helped to analyze it. And, you know, one of the things that we found was that women who had a call to ministry, for instance, often their pastor wouldn't even pray with them about it. That's how bad it is. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, much less do all of the other things that are so important and necessary. So women, they find mentors and they they end up being the best church planters because they don't get appointed to churches. And so they <laughs> they just go. Plant. Just have to. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but church planting seminars almost never have women as the speakers, yet they're the ones who are doing most of the church planting, you know. So um, so they're just these very practical things that can be done that um, at really at the grassroots level. And so that it's not just something we ascribe to. Yes, we believe in women in ministry, you know, but we but, you know, show me that. Show me that because our daughters are languishing or going elsewhere. Um, and, yeah. you know, if you're not valued, you go to a place where you're valued. And um, right. so we've been talking all the time. <laughs> yeah, and I love it. I think those are really helpful, especially kind of the visibility thing that we've really got to be more intentional on to help make change. Um, because these things like, like we talked about, especially in church history, they have happened. Women have led and women have been foundational to the building of the church, but it hasn't been visible. And I think until we make that, like you were saying, that kind of visible nature or like the the visible reality of that, we're just going to keep putting people quote unquote, men are just going to keep putting women in their rightful place. Right. That, and of course I'm saying that very not true, right? Like they're, they're going to think that they're putting women in the right place, but they're not. In fact, they've only hurt the church larger or more in a, in a grander way. Um, Kim, it's been so wonderful. Uh, even before this podcast, we were chatting for a long time, so it's been great to catch up and to have you with the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, this is something I love um, talking about, but I just want to say how much I appreciate you for um, opening up this space for this conversation because your listeners, um, men and women, um, they, they need to be talking about this. They need to be thinking about this. And, um, you know, I'm, I I can't believe it, but I'm an older scholar now, you know, an older teacher. I'm no, 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 almost 61. Um, and I need to know that younger, that younger scholars are going to, and younger ministers are going to have a different road than I've had, you know? And, um, and I think that, the work that you're doing here can really bring about that kind of change. And that's really what we need. We need a change. We need new imagination. You know, <laughs> new way of- yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And again, I appreciate you being here. Is there any way that are for any one of our listeners who may want to connect with you or your work, what would be the best way that they could actually do that? Okay. Um, my, um, let me just give you my Gmail account, which, um, is kind of long, but it's my full name, Kimberly Irvin, E-R-V-I-N, Alexander at Gmail. Um, and, uh, I would love to have any conversations and we could set up a phone call or Zoom, you know, the pandemic's favorite medium. The, the <laughs> do any of that. And I would love uh, to be able to continue the conversation with, with anyone that's uh, that I could encourage or answer questions for. Or maybe you have stuff that that I don't know about, you know, that I um People, some of these stories we need to uncover, you know, um, I'm happy to hear about any of those. And maybe some of you have even done work on that. That would be great for me to hear. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much for being with us. And we hope to have another conversation with you soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Aaron. Oh, 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 oh,